Hello and welcome to Classroom 101, the podcast on all things education, from best practice to the very worst. I'm Andy Vanter Hayden, a journalist turned teacher. I created this podcast so that more educators could have access to the ideas and wisdom of our profession's greatest minds. In Classroom 101, we strive to improve education by calling out its least helpful terms, paradigms, systems or practices, suggesting better alternatives. Our guest today is Louise Flatters. Louise is in her second year of headship at Long Marston Church of England Primary in North Yorkshire. When Louise took over, the school as a whole had less pupils on roll than you'd find in a typical primary classroom. She talks through some of the challenges and benefits that have come with that. She also puts forward an intriguing set of items for Classroom 101, including a whole month of the year. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. So, without further ado, let's get on with the show. When education's in pretty bad shape Teachers are leaving on a plan and their escape There's not enough time to teach the things you should Time to banish education sins you do it if you could Time for Classroom 101 Time for Classroom 101 Time for Classroom 101 Budget slashing everywhere The government insists it cares Are we raising quality With all the endless scrutiny If you're hating league tables And those sad less able labels Time to save our education From self-imposed cremation Time for Classroom 101 Time for Classroom 101 Yeah, it's time for every teacher's favorite podcast Classroom 101 Classroom 101 Louise, welcome Thank you, welcome <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on. Would you please take us through your career path to begin with? Did you always want to be a teacher? Well, that's a million dollar question. I'm afraid I have to say no. Um, I was one of those people that at school we had those career interviews and they would give you a set of questionnaires, you know, um, you tick the boxes and try to avoid making yourself too obvious. And I always came up with, you'd make a great primary school teacher. And it was the <laughs> one thing I really didn't want to do. <laughs> and you I sort of put it aside, went off, um, managed to get into university, did a degree, um, got to my final year, and I thought I'll get one of these great graduate jobs that they keep telling me about. And unfortunately, that just didn't happen. Mm. So I wanted to have the option of doing something different. I knew I wanted to have a job to go to. So I applied for PDGE and got on it. And that became my option. Um, I wasn't averse to the idea of teaching. It just wasn't my sort of, I suppose, my dream job in a way. Mm. Um, so I did a, a one year PDGE up at Durham, where, where I'd been a, a student as well. And then it came to time to apply for jobs. Um, I came from York, my family lived in York, but I obviously was away up at Durham. And I just thought, where would I like to work as a teacher? So I looked around the country. Um, in those days, unfortunately, there's no internet. So if you wanted to find out where to be a teacher, you had to send off in the post for something to come back, usually in a stamped addressed envelope. Um, and I, I think I applied to various authorities to find out what they offered. And the one that I particularly liked the sound of was Suffolk. Um, they they offered 10 days out of the classroom in your first year of teaching as a, as a new teacher, which I thought sounded great. And 
basically my geography wasn't great so I knew Suffolk was near Norfolk and I'd been to Norfolk on holiday so I thought you know what that sounds like a nice place to go to so basically I applied to Suffolk I got an interview with the county pool which is how they recruited in those days which is back in 93 94 so you had an interview with a panel and they they got back to me I think the next week offering me a job so I was given a county contract so I could start work in August that year um, I was guaranteed a job and the next fun thing was for then for me to actually choose which school I wanted to work at so that was that was incredible um oh, found, so found the, a the choice was in your hands it was really I'm not sure what would have happened if I'd have just said no to every option coming I, I had two schools that approached me so I went to visit them both mm-hmm. um and the second school that I went to was the school I worked at first so that was in Ipswich in, in Ipswich Centre mm. So I stayed there for, I think, a couple of years, two or three years, and then moved across to a larger infant school at the other side of Ipswich, which was an amazing school. And then for various reasons, mostly to do with my husband's work at the time, we relocated we relocated over to near Peterborough. And um, I taught over in Peterborough and then in Rutland, which is pretty much borders Peterborough, um, and then relocated again back up to Yorkshire. Right the way up the country. Thank you. And did you have a number of roles in between teacher and head teacher? I, I, I heard nurture teacher. Yes, when, when I was at Peter, actually, one of the roles I had was nurture teacher, which was amazing. I had, a, a, I think, a day and then it became a two-day job. Um, but at the same school, I was also teaching class-based as well. And basically, I was working with children from the nursery and reception class um, with a variety of needs that really just needed nurturing and they had they had some funding at the time so I had the sort of privileged position of taking between one and three children out and about to, to give them the experiences that they weren't really getting in their home life um, mm. for example we took them out to feed the ducks took them to the shop to buy food to make a picnic um, did art activities with them and a lot of it was to encourage um language and communication they didn't have the vocabulary experiences they uh, often that was English as second language um, it was incredibly rewarding I did sort of feel very privileged to be being paid for doing this sort of work so that that was a, that was a really good experience again um, and the other additional role I suppose I've had was lead math teacher which started way back when the numeracy strategy first came in and um, when I was in Suffolk and um, to me that was an absolute revelation we we up up until that point we'd been plugging away teaching maths and number and I was teaching an infant school and I think if I remember correctly in year one you basically did numbers up to twenty and you did a bit mm. of adding and taking away and you did some shape work and then in year two you got a bit higher you got up to maybe up to a hundred and you might do a little bit more and maybe a little bit of multiplication but that was about as far as it went and numeracy strategy came in I just remember somebody coming and sharing the um, the objectives. And we were like, no, children can't do that. Because that was our experience. We just had, we put an absolute ceiling on what the children could do because that's what we only ever taught them. Um, and we just went with it. And we, we gave it a try and we were amazed at, at how far the children could go. And I think that was where I, I think that was probably where I really changed from just being sort of teacher that did what everybody did to thinking, actually, let's just have a rethink of what we just are. I suppose trained to, to think, trained to believe, just think outside the box a little bit, and mm. I, I really enjoyed that, and I really got into it, and I was accepted on a, I think it was a ten day training course to be a lead maths teacher, um, combined with a, I think it was a middle leadership course actually to do maths lead at that time. So I suppose that was the start of 
my leadership journey in a way so starting in the middle leadership role then and that, I think that was my first experience of it. Mm. And what did you study at university? It's a similar story for me I thought I really wanted to go to university I just fancied the idea of getting away and, and, and going and having a great time which I'm, it's a dreadful thing to say but it's the truth um <laughs> And I, and, I, and I didn't have the greatest outlook for my A-levels. So I found a course um, that I could apply for, and it was a combined honours degree. So I had to pick three subjects, and I picked anthropology, philosophy, and English. I'd done an English A-level, obviously hadn't done philosophy or anthropology before. And I, and I actually thought anthropology was probably more like psychology, and obviously I discovered it wasn't in my first year on my course and promptly decided it wasn't really for me and managed to switch then to a joint honours course for English and philosophy, which I did enjoy, um, but it, it, it's probably not my natural inclination as, as subjects. I think I was probably should have done something like maths, but because right. of the choices I made when I was about 15, didn't choose the right A-levels, um, that was my path. So I struggled my way through English when I'm not really a great reader. Did the Shakespeare, I think it was in my third year, we had a Shakespeare unit. We were expected to read, I think, 26 plays in the term. Penguin pass notes came in very hard. <laughs> 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 struggled my way through, scraped through my degree. Had a great first year. I think I got a first in my first year. Had an absolutely dreadful second year. Got a third in my second year. And, and of course, the first year results don't count at all. No. So, so I was sitting on a third <laughs> thinking, Louise, come on, you've got to we've got to do this. So I worked like Billy O for my third year, managed to get a really high two one. But of Goodness. course the average of a well third done. and a two one is a two two, which You're is right. what I came out with. But um I knew I'd, I'd proved myself in my final year I could I could, you know, I could do it. But um mm. yeah, I think it was my it was my fun time at university that did it. I don't think you're you're the only one. Um <laughs> <laughs> I, think that, I've got over, I know when I went to a couple of interviews early on, I tried to make all sorts of excuses and they actually said, Louise, just do not be honest. Say, you've learned, say you had too much fun. Nobody <laughs> might. Well, you know what, it's right. So I'll take that advice. <laughs> it's an interesting route that you've you've taken. Can you tell us about that final step into headship? Yeah, I think um, the year before I applied for headship, I'd been in a senior leadership role for two or three possibly four years at my, that current school and the, the school before so it was something I was used to and then the, the school I was at which was a much larger school than I'm at now uh, the then deputy head left to go to the headship so there was a vacancy and, the, and they restructured slightly so they decided to appoint two assistant heads no deputy and I was successful in applying for one of those positions so I was in that post for a year and to be honest before starting that post I thought actually do I want to go to headship? And I'd really struggled with that for, for quite a while. But equally, I'd always thought to myself, I don't really want to do the deputy role. It wasn't something I really liked the idea of. I enjoyed seeing leadership roles, but that, I suppose, that that responsibility of step up to deputy, but it's not really your school. It wasn't, it's something I felt would be a step towards something rather than something I'd want to do for a long time. I know some people are very happy doing that role, but it just wasn't something I, I really wanted to do for a long time. So I applied for the MPQH course just pretty much as soon as I knew I'd been appointed to the role of assistant head. And I've heard mixed things about it. I've heard, um, and obviously you don't need that qualification anymore, but I knew that it would give me, I suppose, a discipline of doing certain whole school things, which I possibly hadn't had a chance to do before. And I knew that when I sort of had a little vague look around at um, job adverts for headships a lot of them still look for that as, as something that 
was a tick on their tick list. Mm. So I, I applied and it wasn't easy to get on the course, if I'm honest. I, I did the application form and I was called to an interview because my application was borderline. So again, I had to prove myself to say, no, I am ready for this. Yes, my experience might not be whole school enough. I've done a lot of leadership at, a, say, an infant level or a key stage level, but not as much whole school projects as, as they would like to have seen. But I personally felt that I'd got a lot of experience in the, the years I've been teaching and leading that I knew I had what, it, what I needed to have. I did get onto the course, and I think probably being on that course, meeting with other potential heads and existing heads just made me it gave myself that credibility that I could do that role and I could mm. take that next step and I know you sort of hear about this idea of imposter syndrome and being a little bit braver and I think that's that's what that helped me with really I thought no actually no I, I can do this you know I've been teaching for longer than many of these people here I've done leadership roles yeah why not and so I I, I, I was planning probably to spend another year in that role before I looked I started looking and once you start looking it's like houses isn't it you <laughs> I went to look around one school and came away thinking no it's not it's not the right job for me the second school I went to look at actually was this one where I am now and I really just I fell in love with the school it really is a, it's a very small school it does have a sense of family the environment's wonderful it's in a lovely little rural setting it was own woodland but it's a it was a school that really needed I felt really needed looking after and I just could see myself in that role. I need to ask you to tell the listeners a little bit more about your school because when you say it's a very small school <laughs> this was a really unique project that you took on wasn't it? Yes so um, I mentioned looking at sort of adverts for headship and, and this advert came up um, and it talked about the the post and, and the start date and the interview dates and it said the number on roll and it said 26 and I thought well they've just missed the zero off the end um, <laughs> anyway I didn't think much of it went to look round, and of course I realized that 26 was the number on roll um, I, I've never worked in a small school like that before I, I the school at the time I was in was just below 400 so it was just like walking into a different time zone it was it was quite unique um so basically so the school is organized into two classes at the moment we've got reception year one and year two in one class and then all of key stage two in the other class um there is a third classroom which is an empty classroom at the moment so we have potential to grow but typically and historically the school's role goes up and down but it doesn't go down as low as it is now I think usually somewhere between mid 40s to early 50s has been typical and the school runs very well on those numbers unfortunately in I think 2016 the previous permanent full-time head fortunately for her got a got a job at another school so she she left and obviously because of various reasons the the school decided not to appoint a new head straight away they put an interim head in um, to start with just and she stayed just for a term I think on a part-time basis which I think caused a little bit of unsettlement amongst families we just worried about what was what was happening and, and, and where the school was going and then uh, quite a few children were taken out of the school at that time and then that was just for a term and then the September the year before I started the role had gone down to 38 um, and the arrangement was a part-time two day a week head who was a senior teacher in another school so she was coming on an interim arrangement for a year just two days a week and because she wasn't a qualified head and she wasn't there full time her head teacher became an executive head 
and would appear at the school sort of half a day a week. So that was the arrangement for the full year before I came. And unfortunately, for whatever reason, a lot of, a lot of parents felt there was a lack of permanence in it and were worried about the future of the school, uh, worried about their children, whether or not uh, they would be able to continue their education there. And this sort of mass exodus really really sort of rolled so the number one role by the end of that year was 25 hmm. um, and, and some some of the families took their children out because they for example became the only boy left in the year or all their friends had gone so when I took over the school I would say it was probably at the bottom of the bounce so hmm. it had really gone down the in terms of the numbers basically and, and obviously a little bit of low morale amongst staff because lots of things had happened and concerns amongst parents and carers about what was happening. I think the fact that the authority backed the appointment of myself as a permanent and full-time head was a really good um, indicator that they backed permanence of the school, which is great. Um, So my role was, one of the big things, obviously, was to grow the role, grow grow the reputation of the school again, and um, get the numbers back because obviously unfortunately numbers are directly linked to funding so we've got you know you can imagine trying to trying to run a school efficiently with funding for a very small number is really a challenge in Mm. itself Um, and I think also alongside that the only the additional thing was the previous teachers again probably because of what they've been to had decided that it was time to move on so when I was appointed um, about two weeks later I was told that actually the staff had resigned and and there was basically me on staff for September. So we did a great recruitment. We were very lucky to appoint us some, you know, two brilliant members of staff. So it, it was basically starting September with a fresh start and doing what we could to get the school back on its tracks. Um, mm. It's been a real journey. September 2019, our starting role is 36, which is actually, I think, something like a, I think I've worked it out, 38% increase. <laughs> previous year's pupil number so it's massive it's mm. still a small number but it's a massive increase we've had to put a lot of time into marketing the school um, but my standpoint is you can't market something unless you know it's really good mm. so we've had to make sure that what we're offering is really good um, our teaching and learning is there and the opportunities we offer all hampered by a challenging budget so we've had to be incredibly resourceful and very lucky as I said earlier to be to have such fantastic staff so it's not just the teachers it's all the support support staff who go out of their way just to give that extra bit Mm. it is very much like a community um so we've we've managed to attract children from beyond our catchment area and one of the other things we've, we've started this year is we've offered um flexi schooling places which is basically a combination of homeschooling and schooling um, on a both on a part-time basis within each school week. So we've had two families who are, who are coming to school on that basis. Um, they register as full-time members of our school, but they attend on a part-time basis. So it could be two or three days a week for us at the moment. And that's something that we feel our small nurturing environment really caters for. And it fits really well with our ethos of every mm-hmm. child being valued as individuals, but we grow together as a family. So that's our vision, really. So it's been... A bit of a journey. At the moment, we've got really good numbers in our lower school mm-hmm. and our upper school, which where the children were that sort of left. Uh, we've still got some very small numbers, the small cohorts going through. So we've got what, just one child in year six in 2019. <laughs> I think the, the families that have come from out of area have come 
because they're looking for something a little bit different for their children. So um, it, a lot of the feedback we've had has been that they feel that we really would cater for their child as an individual, that we'd be aware of their needs, that we could support them. They like the, it really is like a little family atmosphere and they like the idea. We've had one family that said they really like the idea that their children will be in the same class because it's, that's how it is at home. Mm. Um, that they like the idea that the children mix between the ages so when they go out to play here reception children might be playing with year six it's very common they mm. naturally nurture each other and look after each other i know when i started when i first started in that first week when the new reception children come in they all came at, at, on the first day with, with all the other children and we got to play time and normally in my previous school it takes quite a lot of time to get the little ones ready for their first playtime, get their coats on, see who can zip them up already. But we didn't have to do a thing. The older ones just naturally went over to the little ones and just said, oh, let me help you or, or have a go yourself. And they this took on that role. Um, and I think that's the sort of thing that families are looking for. Mm. So I think that's, that's what we found as being, that's what's special about us. So I think that's, you know, that's what we want to promote. The other thing we've found is a lot of, families don't actually know about the school because we although we're we're about 10 minutes drive from the outskirts of York 10 minutes from Weatherby um a lot of families just don't know about the school and I think actually I found out about other little villages little schools nearby because I've looked but you don't always know so we've had to sort of promote the promote and market a little bit mm. to be a head teacher you are not just the lead teacher there is so much more to it from finance through to recruitment and all sorts. But it's really true in your case, isn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, first of all, I'm a teaching head, so I do have a teaching commitment. I teach um, every week in the younger class, so reception year one and year two. I teach mm. every Friday. And then every morning I've taken the year one symphonics just because I think that's really important. We've got reception year two in there, both needing quite specialised input. So uh, teaching assistant, teacher, and then myself that spreads that out so quite a lot of teaching I tend to cover any supply any courses we've had quite a lot of that this year as we new staff for the schools so there's been a lot of extra courses um and then my two teachers one's an NQT so I wouldn't expect that teacher to take on subject leadership um and then the other teacher has taken on maths and computing lead so really everything else comes my way now I don't pretend I'm a subject leader for those subjects because I just don't think that's doable so we tend to come together the team really and discuss when we need to focus on those subjects but I have the role of SENCO which I'm new to a designated safeguard lead of course which again is a new role to me but I would expect to do that with the headship role um, and then it's the financial side it's the dealing with the um all the service level agreements it's um, talking to suppliers talking to tradesmen talking to um people who come and do buildings checks um it's a it's a massive thing i hadn't realized how many things i'm i need to know about and i know we did um there's, there's a document which talks about all the responsibilities and my name's up there so i'm actually responsible in school for asbestos management for regional uh, management um, obviously health and safety all the different aspects and so I've done a legionella course I've done asbestos training um, it's 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 incredible and, and and all these things are quite new to me so yes I do want to ask as well about a caretaker do you have a caretaker we have a wonderful lady called Nora who's our um, cleaner she she 
she did have I think a couple of caretaking hours which I didn't realize until a little bit later but she she basically comes in at after school and, and cleans for you know for her couple of hours but we don't really have a caretaker so in the morning member of staff unlocks um and yes when things need repairing we <laughs> we either do a bit of a bodge job ourselves or get somebody in so yeah it's very interesting I think I think the thing when it really brought it home to me was Christmas when we'd ordered a Christmas tree my previous school you would come in in the morning and the wonderful caretaker would have put it up and then it was great fun the children would come and put a decoration on the tree well here the Christmas tree arrived and it was just propped up outside the door so that's basically what what happened. So, I mean, it's nothing. It's nothing amazing, but it was just a very funny moment. They, they, we got the Christmas tree in at lunchtime, and we thought, right, we're going to put it up. We found one of these metal stands to put it in. Unfortunately, the, the tree trunk was much too wide to go in the metal stand, and it's what you do at home. So we thought we'd we'd chop a bit off. So we got one of the saws we found in the cupboard, um, and health and safety just didn't come into our afraid. So our wonderful administrator administrative assistant was straddled across the Christmas tree just to hold it still while my key stage two teacher was armed with a saw sawing the end of this Christmas tree at strange angles so it would fit into this metal slot and the the lady was going up and down on the Christmas tree and the sawing was spreading sawdust everywhere we were holding the children no don't come near don't come near we're just sawing the Christmas tree and it, it, it worked it went in and then we had to work out how to get it once it was in there into where we wanted it it was about I think an eight foot tree which we hadn't quite estimated. It fitted in the hall, but it was just one of those wonderful experiences. We thought, this is what it's about. It's like, a, like being at home. It's like a family yeah. coming together and, and you know, getting stuck in. Yeah. <laughs> if you're happy, should we go into the crux of the show? Yeah, go on, yeah. What's the first thing that you'd like to throw away? Okay, so this is something, a term that I've heard used, um, and it's a term, always children. Hmm. And every time I hear it, I'm afraid I'd cringe somewhat. And I've heard it used in two different ways. The first one is for attendance. So children who have come to school every day are rewarded. Um, and it could be anything as exciting as a trip to the cinema or a tea party, but they're rewarded. But the children who haven't come to school every day are not. Mm-hmm. These are your always children. And I just find that practice awful. Uh, and I know there's a lot of people out there who do it and I know attendance pressures are there but it's what it is to me is the fact that it discriminates against the children who can't attend school every day and there's always a reason you know does a five-year-old decide whether or not they're going to go to school or not no mm. it, it, you know it's not down to the children so what we're doing is basically trying to get a message through the children to people at home by not including their children in something exciting I think it's discriminating to, to celebrate attendance you know there's lots of reasons why children can't attend school illnesses are obviously often the most common one we, we tell our children not to come to, back to school for 48 hours after they've had a sickness and diarrhea you know so what, what message are you saying you know are the children going to come to school when they're not well are their parents going to shove them through the door they're going to be cowpolled up till lunchtime it just doesn't make sense to me um, I think you can, you can promote attendance and you can get that message across without having to reward those children that do it every day. And I think also it's a bit of a strange message to say, well done, you've come to school every day, because that's what we expect children to do, to come to school every day. Mm. So it just seems a really strange thing to reward them for. And the other one is, is the always children for behaviour. And 
I do have a massive problem with this. I think, again, I think it's discriminatory. I think there's always a reason why a child hasn't met behaviour expectations. And I think in some way, I think as a school, we should take some responsibility for that. You know, if we haven't met their needs, possibly that's why they're not getting all their ticks on their behaviour chart or whatever the school uses. Um, I'm not against praise. I think praise can be really useful, especially, especially when it's specific praise and you're explaining what it is that the child's done well, whether it's their effort or their perseverance, whatever it is. I'm not against praise, but again, to reward children who you, you are rewarding because they haven't done something wrong. Um, and I know that where it's come about, I think it's come about from people saying, the same children in my class never seem to get rewards because it's the ones who have the most difficulties to get more rewards. But that's up to us as teachers to manage. You know, if you think there's a child there that is always working hard, then tell them. You don't need to have a party for them. Mm. You know, I think children are quite quite aware of this. I think um, what message does it give to children if you are rewarding them for never making a mistake? Are we saying that we're only accepting perfection? Because children aren't perfect. You know, we expect children to make mistakes. Um, if you've got a growth mindset, that's what we promote. Um, adults make mistakes. So it just doesn't sit well with me at all. Uh, and again, I think children aren't and shouldn't be always children. So that's the first one. Well, that's a great one to start with because there will be plenty of teachers listening around the country who've got so much experience of this. I guess they might say, what's wrong with a little celebration it's it's only an extension of what you were saying about praise it's just a slightly more grand type of praise what's the harm in that i think i think the biggest thing for me is as soon as you make a mistake for example you've done something wrong monday morning i'll say you're blown for the week Hmm. um as soon as you don't attend because you've been poorly that's it you're never going to get your 100 percent for the year and i think part of education is about Putting, the, putting what's gone into the past, having a fresh start, demonstrating forgiveness, um, demonstrating that you can learn from mistakes. And I think that goes against it. You know, mm. If I was a child and I'd done something wrong, you know, I could fret about that if I felt that that meant I couldn't have something later. Mm. I also think for children that overhang from an action for any longer than pretty much immediately, especially for younger children, it's just not helpful. I think to be rewarded several weeks later, especially these, these end, of, end of term, end of year type rewards, for something that you did or didn't do weeks before, um, mm. I just I don't think that's in the children's mindset. I just don't think that's how their, their minds think. think. Things need to be dealt with and, and sort of looked at and unpicked at the time, not rewarded or not rewarded several weeks later there are theorists and psychologists particularly who talk about another potential negative of things like this which is that once you put a reward for it there's a subliminal message that if there wasn't a reward why would i do it yeah i think it's that growth mindset is it carol dweck yes i remember i've watched some of her talking i had had a a day training on growth mindset a a couple of years ago and i think it's really interesting because that made me really think about things like the use of stickers so we tend not to give stickers out not not because we're mean i mean children do like them but it's that over-reliance on rewards and and actually what's what i've noticed is you can say well done and give a reason what it is that's well done 
if you follow that up with a sticker, as you say, they will want a sticker every time. If you follow that up with a certificate, that's what they expect and then they're disappointed if they don't. But if you just stop at the well done and the reason why, children are quite happy with that. Mm. So it's very much learnt behaviour and I do agree with that. We do do um, an, an achievement or an awards celebration on the Friday. I'm not against that. I think we we tend to pick, we pick um, a writer of the week, which any child can get. So we're not saying you can't get it because you did a spelling mistake wrong a couple of weeks ago. And it's that kind of thinking. They've worked really hard for it. We've picked them out. With our small numbers, you know, the children actually have quite a good chance of getting some of these rewards. And, and we do try to pick a really good reason why, you know, some, something that recognises their effort, their perseverance, um, their experiment with something that, we've, you know, they've tried, that they haven't tried before. So we do celebrate their good work and then their effort. But the word always doesn't come into it. No. Hmm. Really interesting. I think that's going to throw the cat amongst the pigeons already in, in the conversation with teachers. So I'm looking forward to hearing and reading what people think about that. So thank you very much, Louise. What's your second item to throw into Classroom 101? I think there may be some parallels with this one with my first item, but it's the term, well, it's the labelling of children as gifted and talented. Um, a few years ago, I think most schools... I'm assuming most schools, because the schools I worked in had a register of children that were gifted and talented. And they'd come around, somebody would be designated as a gifted and talented leader. Yes. And they'd come around every term or every year and say, can I just check who's on your list? Do you want these people on your list still? Have you got any more to add or shall we take any of them off it? And that was <laughs> a gifted and talented list. And I mostly featured children who were gifted and talented in maths, some readers, a couple of writers, and usually some, a couple of artists and a couple of kids who are good at PE. Yes. Um, so that was your list. And I didn't particularly think much of it at the time, if I'm honest. It was just something that happened. But now, um, I think the thing that really made me think of this one, I think it was probably earlier last year, I'd seen a school actually tweeting about taking their gifted and talented children group for a day out at the Space Centre. And I think it's actually sort of picked my ears up and I've seen a couple of things where the gifted and talented children have gone to events, um, an art day, I think I saw, and a maths event, um, but particularly things like the, the, the visit to the Space Centre. And it just made me think, why, why are those children going to the Space Centre? Because they are deemed to be gifted and talented. So how does that work? What's that message there? So if you're... If you, appear to have gifts and talents we will support you more than if you don't is that how our education system works but I don't think it is I think we tend to try and promote the same things in everybody but obviously cater to everybody's individual needs if you again that growth mindset comes in if you're telling these children and they know they're in the greatest gifted and talented group if you're telling those children they've been chosen to do really exciting things because of their natural gifts and talents are you telling them that they probably don't need to work as hard as anybody else um what happens to those children when they come up against real challenges later in life or even you know that year that how do they cope with that because somebody's told them they're good at it because of something that's natural about them now i've thought about it and i do believe that people have a greater natural propensity towards some things than others. And I don't I, I don't disagree with that. I do think that's the case. And I look at myself and I think, yes, I, I clicked with maths, struggled with music, struggled with languages, 
and, and I do think there is a case for people having natural inclinations more towards other things. And I think that, you know, you see that particularly as children get older. But to label a child as gifted and talented, particularly when they're younger at primary school, and then to allow them to do different things because of that, that just doesn't sit right with me at all. It's another fascinating one. Carol Dweck and, and others have written extensively about how that message can then imbue a, a fixed mindset and can lead to children trying to prove themselves what the adults already believe them to be. So the adults think that I'm gifted at this and now I need to make sure I keep up that pretense and so I can't show any fallibility or mistakes. And that can that can lead to fixed mindset and then less progress ultimately. Is that where you're coming from? It is, no, definitely. I think now I'm a believe in growth mindset and I think it, it, that message is that it's hard work and perseverance is so important. And labelling children as gifted and talented in a fixed way is therefore wrong because it as you say it gives those children the message that they're just lucky almost to have a gift mm. and, and equally those children might be working incredibly hard but i think it's that label um and actually children are told they're in a gifted and talented group i've seen that you know mm. you're putting it out there they know that's why they've gone on the trip or they've had a different thing to everybody else um and I think, what message does it give to everybody else? You know, that's where I'm thinking. If you're not in that gifted and talented group, what are you thinking about yourself? Mm. You might be really hard. What are, what are you thinking about? I really fancy going. I'm really interested in the space centre. You know, I really love to go there. And are they putting on trips for the other children? So are they having a, a low ability group day out? Can you imagine that? <laughs> and I think it's that same way of thinking I have for when, when people are planning lessons and when you're planning for different children within a lesson differentiation, you know, I think we've moved from planning in a fixed way to say, group A are going to do this activity, group B, this activity, and group C, this activity. Actually, you know, the best plans come from a knowledge of the children you've got from previous sessions. And you plan the next session based on what you know about the children where they are. So you mm. you might change your support slightly. You might add in extra modelling um, based on what you know. And you might provide some additional activities which could be open potentially to any of the children. Not to say, well, actually, I've only printed out five because I've only got five in my gifted and talented group or my greater depth group. And I think it's that same mentality where you're saying, actually, to take the labels off. Let's take the ceilings away. Um, yes, you might end up with a bit of extra photocopying, which, you know, is the downside, but it's not a bad side. Um, and I think that that is quite in interesting. It extends across to your everyday. It's not just those sort of gifted and talented types of things. It's the same mentality. Last question on this. In previous schools, have you taught in sets and, in fact, in groups? So have you taught in classes where there's been a, a circle, a square, a triangle group or a blue or red and so on? And how has that sat with you? And perhaps it's not quite as relevant with 26 on roll at the moment, but you'll have the opportunity to make decisions about whether your classes do have groups. Is that something you would ever do now? Um, in my previous school, we, you know, I was very much against setting the children especially in maths which was something that was happening um and there had been in phonics and i think i've seen it work really well without needing to set children um so i wouldn't personally do it however thinking back to what i have done yes i have and i'm i will tell you now that i used to have maths groups based on the number of sides to shape i called them so the circle mm. group 
no sides at all. They were the ones that were really struggling. <laughs> and if you're in the hexagon group, you know, you'd really made it because you've got six sides and you're doing really well. And my triangles were sort of, you know, down there. And my squares were somewhere in the middle. And I did use that. And, you know, I, I, I look back in horror now, if I'm honest. Um, although at the time, I think when I did it, I did it with the best intention. I did it because I knew the children and I knew, they knew, I knew the support they needed. But we planned differently. Uh, it wasn't just me. You know, there wasn't the sort of the this mastery approach where everybody's basically aiming at the same thing and, and we're going into greater depth with some children. We we planned with an actual expectation that different children were achieving different outcomes. Mm. Um, very, very different to where I am now. And it was more of a fixed mindset. Well, thank you. Gift and Natalita goes into Classroom 101. What would you like to throw away thirdly and finally? So my third one is a bit complicated. And, and, and hopefully I'll explain it so you'll see where I'm coming from. <laughs> so it's the month of June. The month yeah. of June. The month of June. And it's, it's really the sad story of the month of June. <laughs> Do tell. <laughs> I will tell you. At the moment... Year two and year six, statutory assessment takes place in May. Mm. So all the curriculum for those year groups have been taught between September to April so that they're ready for the SATs in May. Um, and May is a time for testing. Now, in May half term, if you will go anywhere near Twitter, you will see that everybody across the country is writing their reports in May. Mm. People are making their judgments and their end of year thoughts on those children at the end of may so then i think well what's june about because actually it's not just year two and year six that are writing reports in may it's actually all the other groups however i would like to point out that early years have actually got this they've got this covered because early years doesn't seem to stop at the mm. end of may so they keep going i'll come back to early years later <laughs> but a lot of schools are asking for submission of data early so you're writing reports you're putting in where the children are you're basically submitting your first set of data for the end of year at the end of may mm. whether that's official or not that's what's happening that's my experience in several schools i've worked in so then we lose an extra month and that month that we lose is the month of june i don't actually want to put june into classroom 101 but what i feel like is it's being pushed into there so what does happen in June? So June is, right, everyone, let's carry on teaching as normal. Yes, of course we're teaching as normal. Is it nearly the end of term? Which class am I having next year? Um, are we going to be moderated? Yeah, what happens in June is phonics check. Great. We love the phonics check. Multiplication check. That was actually quite interesting this year. quite enjoyed mm. that one. And the other thrill you can have, if you're really lucky, is moderation. And it's really that wonderful chance for you as teachers to show somebody coming in that you actually know what you're talking about. It's a chance for you to spend a little bit of extra time putting things together in the right order so you can get them at the flick of a hand. You can find um, where little Johnny was able to show you his knowledge of 3D shapes and you can show where little Sam could um, do a multiplication in the right way. And you can show somebody else that you've actually made your judgments correctly. So that's what happens in June. It's a jolly month, isn't it? Um, <laughs> and, and what I'm trying to say is because, and this, this is going to go on a bit of a tangent now, because of the high stakes we put into our assessment 
we have basically taken out a whole month of our educational year every year. Everybody's getting ready for May. Even if you're in a year group which isn't having a test, a statutory test, the school's being dragged down to this time scale which fits everybody else. I think that's that's true. I'm not sure it's true in every school, but from my experiences, it seems to be true. Reports are being definitely being written at the end of May, and as soon as you write that report, you've made up your decisions about those children. And I just think it's a massive shame, you know, if we could get rid of what's happening with the SATs, and it, and it really does come down to high stakes accountability. If we could push them into June, let's do any assessments we want to do in June. Let's quickly tot up how they've done. Let's put that with our teacher assessments at the end of June. Um, and let's have July for the end of term. Let's bring back June. <laughs> let's not put it into classroom 101. And I think I just think it's a shame because you, you're talking April or September to April, which is what, eight months of the school year. And then that's it. Mm. Um, I love July. July's great. It's all about sports day and leavers assemblies and transition and trips and um, performances. July's great, but but June isn't. It's I think it's a big sigh of relief when you get to June if you're not being moderated, if you're not doing the phonics check, and if you've managed to get all your reports done on time. Uh, Don't I make any sense? Totally. You're saying June is collateral damage, really, for the high stakes accountability system that then sort of infiltrates across all the other year groups yeah I do think I think that's exactly what I'm saying I think I did mention early years you know my experience is early years doesn't have testing Mm. it does have accountability you do submit your profile you do make decisions for each child it's a far greater number of judgments than you do for any other year group Um, and you have to be able to provide the evidence for that Mm. and early years teachers just keep going um, and, and you know every admiration to that process and they seem to they seem to just use that that way of assessment to develop an incredible knowledge of every child and mm. as I said be able to make judgments in all those different areas which all go towards the profile and then create a GLD um, score or pass or not um, which is actually very different from all the other year groups and I'd really love to see that happening through the school that, that yeah. would be my dream I'd love to use um, an early year style curriculum and take it all the way through all those areas are so important and you know we're not assessing we're not assessing in personal development and social skills and creativity there's mm-hmm. wonderful early years learning goals that, that we could take all the way through and I'm sure most most teachers value greatly mm. so what about people who would say well in order to get all these tests marked we can't leave it as late as the end of June and the same for getting all the data in to get all the data in and analyze it. And then from there, work out what we're going to do next year as a result. It's hard if you push that all up to the end of June. I think it's hard because the, because of the external marking of the SATs. Mm. If it was internal, if it was an assessment, just like year two staff do, years two staff mark their own SATs. Um, Yes, it takes a bit of time. Okay, but that could be done commenced in June. So that process could be done within June. Um, And let's not bother with moderation. Let's just (laughs) trust us. Let's moderate through the year. Let's check in our judgments. Let's not wait till we've submitted where we think the children are. Let's just come and go through the year. Um, Not everybody's moderated anyway. You know, we end up with a system where if you're moderated, people say, well, I'm not doing any extra work for moderation. 
but they do. I can <laughs> tell you, you can't help but do that. If you know you're being moderated and you've got a little bit of time, you just you know you pretend you're carrying on as normal, but you know you're being moderated. There's all those borderline judgments. There's lo- always borderline judgments, and you just have to make sure you've got extra extra evidence to support it. I think it takes away from the teachers' professionalism. All the schools I've worked at, we've always um, moderated through the year. We've moderated at local authority training sessions. We've moderated with other schools. So, you know, I don't think I've ever had any of my judgment changed at moderation. Um, I think I know I know what I'm doing so far as the guidance is there. Um, so it just becomes another layer that I think we could do without. So trust your staff, trust their judgments and save June. Save June, yeah. <laughs> I feel like there's a hashtag in here somewhere, Louise. Start the campaign. <laughs> Bring back June. Thank you, Louise. That was really interesting. Uh, I never thought June would be off into Classroom 101, but there you go. <laughs> I, don't want to, I don't want June to No, go. reluctantly. <laughs> Hi there. I hope you're enjoying the show. This is a quick request for your help. The aim of Classroom 101 is to share ideas and wisdom in education. So if you like what you hear from Louise, I'd be really grateful if you could help spread the word, whether verbally or via social media. You can tweet the show at Classroom101pod, me at AndyVT101, and Louise at HeadForNothing1. Finally, take a look on the platform you're currently using to listen, and you should see a little follow or subscribe button. Please click that to get a notification for each new episode, plus you'll make us feel that little bit more popular. Thanks for the fabulous response to last week's episode with Laura McInerney and the great many of you commenting, including Matthew Evans, Amanda Greenhill and Andy Buck, to name but a few. Now, we finish each episode with three quick questions for our guests. So, let's get back to the show. Your first question is, what's your fondest educational memory? I think one of my early memories was basically on a school trip and I think I've got a few memories of school trips so quite young probably about five I do remember a trip to a farm I don't remember all the details but I remember animals and I remember sitting on a straw bale eating a jam tart my mum had cooked for me to have for my pat lunch because I didn't have pat lunches very often and I just remember having the best time um, and I think I think that's really important because when I think back, my memories of primary school really are trips, plays, um, probably it. I don't really remember a typical English lesson or a typical maths lesson. I remember when things went a bit wrong or children did something really quite outrageous. But those memories of like a trip to the farm or a trip to, we went to Whitby, they stay with you. And I think it's really important, that message that, those things we provide for the children will stay with them forever. They might not remember the maths lessons and the geography and history, but they'll remember those experiences. And I think it's so important that we make sure we include those in our education for them. Mm. Thank you. What's one guilty pleasure you enjoy too much to give up? Okay, so probably my guilty pleasure is what I consider to be my trashy downtime. <laughs> it's basically once I sit down in the evening, that is it. I'm not getting up really until I go to bed. So it tends to be end of the evening. Um, and, and I like to sit down, 
with my phone the telly on and I will look at the most random YouTube videos going and my my YouTube feed is brilliant because it, it seems to think it knows what I'd be interested in watching so let me think um last night I was watching a video on the 10 best red cards given to goal scorers in football ever <laughs> number one was a, was wonderful he took his trousers right down and, and did a little dance and promptly got a red, red card and got sent off <laughs> What else? I found out how to um, how to cut pineapple. Um, I've I tell you what I'm, I'm into at the moment. There's wonderful videos around where they make these wonderful creations with matchsticks, and they they make volcanoes and they make shapes, and then they light the first matchstick and it sets them all off. It's a bit like dominoes, but it's with matchsticks. If you haven't watched it, I would honestly recommend it. Just just put matchstick art into YouTube, and you'll see what I mean. But it's just trashy. It's just uh, easy and at the same time I'm watching television so uh, my favourite television trashy programme is probably First Dates or First Dates Hotel <laughs> just love it I think the staff so I think it's Fred the um, maitre d' you've got Merlin the wait, the um, barman and then CC, and I can't remember the name of the other staff but they're just brilliant it's just utter <laughs> trash I love it. Wouldn't go anywhere near Love Island. Wouldn't don't like Big Brother, but first dates, brilliant. <laughs> What's the best invention ever created? So, for me, I would say the internet, but I'm going to just bring it right down because that's just too big. Let's go for Google Maps. Okay. Google Maps is my friend in the car. I just think it's amazing. I, I have three children. I have that. All three of them have done various sports in their time. And, you know, I need to be here by so-and-so, travelling across the country, finding these strange football pictures, athletics tracks or hockey pictures. I can just set off knowing that I'm going to get there, knowing how long it's going to take me and knowing where the traffic jams are. I can even find out where the speed cameras are, which is wonderful. (laughs) Or where McDonald's are on the way. So it's absolutely fantastic. I think Google Maps is so clever. Sometimes, you know, can... I think once I booked, um, I was booking a villa, a holiday, and I, didn't, I wasn't sure about this villa. And I went on Google Maps and zoomed in on the satellite, and you could see why I wasn't sure about the villa because there's a massive main road nearby it. So it's just so helpful. Um, <laughs> the only thing I do think, though, is that I remember back to the days where you'd sit in the car if you were lucky to have a passenger, and that was usually me with one of those great big road atlases, like an AA route map, like mm, that folded out till it was coming out the oh, window. Yeah. And invariably, the, the page you wanted had got scrunched under somebody's foot or was missing, or <laughs> the city you wanted to travel to was actually on the next page. Yeah. And, and I was dreadful at, at reading those maps. I think I knew where I was, and I'd be on the red road. And actually, we, weren't, we were on the, I can't remember the colours of the roads now, but, you know, they were really hard to use. Um, and we used to get lost all the time and take probably three hours when it should have been two hours. But there was a little bit of fun involved in having the map. So I do miss it a little bit. So my suggestion to Google Maps is if they could add in a holiday mode, that would be great. Because day to day, when you're at work and business, you need to get somewhere, Google Maps is brilliant. When you're on holiday, you've got a day out, you just want to explore a little bit. Google Maps is just a bit boring, isn't it? You can go the fastest route, you can go the shortest routes. But what you want is you want Google Maps to say, well, if you take a detour to your left, you can see a historic monument that was built <laughs> in 
forever and you can stop for a while there's a great place to park just by the side of the road that's what we want because that's what we used to see on those maps that you fold out in the car so we'd go on our holidays to sort of wales and you'd you'd know the way you wanted to go but you'd also see on the map that there were some quite interesting little crosses and things and think well let's go and investigate or little built up areas we go and investigate so i think if google maps could do that I would just, you know, I'd be, I'd be sold for life. I might even pay a very small amount a month, but please don't tell them that because Google Maps is free and it should always be free. Um. <laughs> Google Maps then, best invention. <laughs> Louise, I've really enjoyed listening to the history of your career and some of your ideas for Classroom 101 will really get people talking. So always rewards a gifted and talented label and the month of June going into Classroom 101 today. I can't wait to hear people's views on that. Thanks so much for your time. No, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. It's really made me think, actually. So I'll probably listen back and think, oh, I'm not sure if I believe that now. You know how you do. You listen to yourself and think, oh. That's it, isn't it? Part of learning is being brave and occasionally saying what you think and then having that courage to know that in a month's time you might look back and go, oh, I don't think that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, but thank you for, for having that bravery today to, to share with us all those ideas and thoughts. I've really enjoyed it. So. Louise Flatters, thank you for being our guest on Classroom 101. In education's in pretty bad shape. Teachers are leaving on a plan and their escape. There's not enough time to teach the things you should. Time to banish education since you do it if you could. Time for